So I was at the hospital for a couple months on the ventilator. And they told my parents and Scott that they could not do anything for me, that I had about six months to live, and that I would never get off the ventilator. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 10 of the Jason Juliet podcast, where we talk to real people about the life experiences that have shaped their perspectives on the world and try to take away some lessons that we can all learn from. No real updates or housekeeping, so I want to jump right into the show and introduce my guest today, Mrs. Colleen Adamson. And as you can probably tell from even the short excerpt that you just heard, her story is an unbelievable one. And it was even more special for me because Colleen isn't just a friend of mine, but she's also family. Although, like so many of us, we don't get to see each other nearly as often as we should. Uh, It was an honor to get to visit her in her home in Washington, D.C., which she shares with her husband, Scott, and their miniature schnauzer, Penny, who I cannot leave out. And it was just amazing to hear Colleen tell her story in her own words at her dining room table. And I'm getting a little bit choked up. But by the way, speaking of her dining room, if you hear a lawnmower, (laughs) there is a very nice gentleman mowing the lawn directly next to Colleen's dining room window during the interview. Uh, He did a fantastic job. Lawn came out great. It actually wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. So without any more delay, I give you my guest for episode number 10 of the Jason Juliet podcast, Mrs. Colleen Adamson. Okay, so we are live with Miss Colleen Adamson. It is so good to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. That's awesome. Um, so we should let people know how we know each other. I, I spent a little bit of time trying to figure this out, and you are technically my stepsister-in-law. Correct. Would that be correct? That's correct. So yes. your husband, your husband's father, is my mother's husband. Yep. Okay. That's how it is. So technically, we're family, but I think mm-hmm. we're we're uh, technically we're we're two blood relations disassociated. <laughs> I, I believe so. So, but we're still family. We're still family. We're, but so we're close. still family. Yes. So when I thought about doing this podcast, your name was one of the first ones that popped into my mind as somebody that I know that I don't know well enough that I would like to talk to more, that that I would like to know more about. And we're here in Washington D.C. And you and my stepbrother Scott live here. And how long have you been in Washington D.C. Actually, gosh, since 1993. Okay, so you got time. Yeah, so you guys have been here since '93. And I want to say, since you married Scott and you've been part of the family, I think that we've only seen each other maybe two or three times. We were yeah. trying to figure that out when I got here last night. It, it it's been quite a while. Yeah, I know. I don't know why that is. It's just, yeah, and I hardly see. Your brother Eric too, because right. he's he has a different uh, schedule than we do. He's younger, so he stays out later than I do. And <laughs> you don't say. He sleeps in, and I don't. <laughs> yep, yep. He's not. He's not quite on the. Uh, well, he will be pretty soon. He his his new job. He's going to be up and up and at him early. But um, so I the one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk to you was not just because of everything that's happened to you, but is just that the perspective that you have after all these things have happened I mean trying to go around and learn things from people some of the best things that you can learn happen when people have a different perspective on the world than you do and the experiences that you've had 
certainly give you a unique perspective. So for those who, for those who don't know, tell us exactly, walk us through exactly what started when, when you were first diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of 13 months. My mom actually recognized the symptoms, um, but the doctors would not Your mother recognized the symptoms? Yeah, she had the the Dr. Spock book. And so she knew, you know, there was failure to thrive. I was always sick. Um, And she just kept looking up the symptoms and she found cystic fibrosis. And she kept insisting to the doctors that I be tested. And they kept saying no because it didn't run in my family because it's a genetic disease. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, cystic fibrosis is only called cystic fibrosis starting in the 1950s. So anything before that, it was just a lung ailment. Right. So I did have a lung ailment on both sides of my family. Oh. So that was probably cystic fibrosis. So it almost boiled down to semantics. They right. just didn't have the right term for right. it. Wow. And so my they, they finally agreed that I'd be tested. So it's a sweat test. And um, sure enough, I was off the charts have, to have CF. So that when, when did they finally agree to test you? You said your mother noticed at 13 months? Was no, that, she noticed it way before then, but it, was, it wasn't until 13 months It wasn't old until then that they that finally they, agreed to yes. do the testing. Right. Wow. And thank God my mother was persistent about that because the earlier you're diagnosed, the better chance you have of survival. Right. Even though when I was diagnosed at that time, about 1970, um, the average age of survival is only five years old. So my parents were told that I probably wouldn't live past the age of five. And I just can't imagine what that would have was like for my parents to hear that. Now, my mom is a very determined woman. So I'm sure she was like, heck no, that she's going to live way past that. And here I am today by sheer determination of my mother sometimes, I think, you know. Well, it it, uh, it clearly must have run in the family. I'm sure there's a bunch of people that are like, well, duh, look, look at the two of them, clearly. Yeah, yeah between the two of us, we were determined that I was going to live past the age of five. So just a real quick uh, crash course. I, I have a few friends that are nursing students that may be listening, but, but for a vast majority of the public, what exactly is cystic fibrosis? Well, it's a genetic disease, like I said, and uh, there's no cure for it. It's a basically um, affects... Mostly the lungs, that's pretty much what will kill you with, when you have CF. But it also affects the sinuses, it affects the pancreas, so you can't digest your food. Right. So we have to take special enzymes to um, help digest our food. So we don't absorb fat, we don't retain salt, so we have to have a ton of salt in our diet, we have, a, have to have a ton of fat in our diet, which to me is the only positive aspect of CF, because <laughs> you can eat whatever the heck you want, and it's great, because... Um, you know, you're breathing, you're trying to breathe so much and spending so many calories breathing that you just have to eat a ton of calories a day just to maintain your weight. And even doing so, I never reached 100 pounds until probably after the lung transplant. So so talk to me, how old were you when you first received the lung transplant? I was 29 years old. So from 13 to 29... What is that like? I mean, what is it like going through adolescence with this and, 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 and just not knowing? You grow up very quickly because I started going into the hospital for antibiotic treatments when, you know, IV, intravenous antibiotic treatments when I was in the fourth grade. Wow. So you're talking to adults all the time. 
And you're in there for at least two weeks. About serious things, too. Serious things, not, yes. not Not the Saturday morning cartoons right. here. Right, about your health and your what you're eating and what medicines you're taking and uh, things like that, how you're feeling. Um, so you grow up very quickly. Um, and I was in the hospital probably every couple of years at first, and then it becomes you know, typical CF. It becomes more and more... Uh, frequent that you go into the hospital. So how often were you going in when you were like in your early teens compared to how frequent were you going in in your early 20s? Like what's the ramp up look like for that? Um, I was probably going in every year when I was in my teenage years and then by the time I was in college it was still every year and then it was like twice a year and then it was three times a year. Wow. So it, it ramps up pretty quickly and, and, it, and it, you know sometimes you're you're feeling better than other years you know it depends on what you're doing you know I was in college and, and graduate school so I was pushing myself pretty hard so I was in the hospital probably more often no, not quite taking care of yourself as yeah you, you know been. And, yeah. and in high school I was playing basketball and more active sports wise and I wasn't playing sports when I was in college really I, I wouldn't have guessed that you would have been able to play basketball with that yeah. you, you still you st- well, I guess there's that determination threat. I shouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I played for like six years. I played up to varsity level. Really? Yeah. For six years you played basketball? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I never, I never, I tried. I tried once. I tried. It, I love it. It wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I lo- yeah, I still love it. I don't play anymore, but I still love to watch it. So once things start to get to the point where you realize that they're starting to get pretty dire, we're in your late 20s now, you're starting to go to the hospital more frequently. Yep walk me through it and I, and, I mean. and this that's one of this the times when I was doing a lot of stuff I was going to England a couple times for work um, which was stressful because I had to bring all my equipment that I use for postural drainage you know get trying to get the mucus out of my lungs and um, ended up burning up one of my machines while I was over there because of the current difference oh that's right yeah, yeah. yeah. so I had to go to, I had to go to one of their hospitals to get a lunar machine so that was very stressful um, then we, we bought a house and got married all in the span of six months. Wow. Okay. Walk me back real quick. So how old were you when you met Scott? I was, how old was I? Uh Oh, he's going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably about 24. Okay. I was, uh, it was my first week on the job with the Navy okay. as a cost analyst. And uh, they paired me with, a woman who was only about maybe a year older than I was, as kind of a mentor. Okay. And so she took me out with her friends that first Friday. I was even in the, you know, here in D.C. And that's when I met Scott and a lot of people that we're still friends with today. Wow. So how does that go getting into the Navy and, and, and going into that career with that disease? I thought that there were uh, limitations they would put on certain illnesses to let you into the armed forces, but that no, was... No, I wasn't in the Navy, but I worked for the Navy. Oh, you worked for the Navy, yep. not in the Navy. Right, okay, I right. wasn't sure if there was a distinction there. But yeah, I wouldn't have been able to work in the Navy. Okay, yeah, because okay. Of, because of CF. Let's jump back into now that you're working for the Navy and doing cost analysis, you've met Scott and you were saying that you guys had bought a house and Mm -hmm. things were, a lot of things were happening in a very short amount of time. And one of those things was going back into the hospital and having this realization. Well, um, what happened was, you know, we got married and I was, I was losing weight very quickly because of stress and because I had an issue with my gallbladder. So it was making me nauseous. So it was, it was very catch 22. So I was trying to eat and gain weight but it made me uh, nervous 
every time I tried to go to eat, because I knew I had to eat, and it made me nervous, and then that made me nauseous, and then it was a vicious cycle, so I couldn't eat, and then the, the cycle would start over again. Every time I'd go to eat, I'd get nervous, because I knew I had to eat, and then I wouldn't be able to eat, because I was nervous and nauseous, and then the cycle would continue. Right. So by the time the, our wedding came around, I mean, I kept losing weight. They had to keep refitting my dress. So I was probably 90 pounds when I got married. Wow. And now I'm 130. Wow. Well, that's, that's a, certainly a good improvement. Yes. But I was, so I was very tired, you know, for the wedding. I mean, I was, ex <clears throat> excuse me, excited about it and everything. And Absolutely. I, yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it, but I was very, very tired uh, just because my lungs weren't doing well. I was stressed out. Um, I was losing weight. And um, so, so about six months after the wedding, um, I was in the hospital for what I thought was a normal IV antibiotic treatment, which normally would last about three weeks. And I was in there, I was fine, you know, and I, and I, but I had a um, gastric tube in my stomach um, for feedings because I was losing so much weight. Right. And... And I, I was doing okay. And the next thing I remember is I feel like my lung collapsed. And I just remember them taking me out of the room very quickly and going into an elevator. Wow. So something happened. And that's the last thing I remember for the next month, roughly. Wow. So what had happened was I went into respiratory failure. So my, you know, Scott was there, of course. My parents were there. And since Scott was my husband of six months, poor thing, um, he had to make the decision whether or not to let me go or to put me on a ventilator. So let me just pause real quick because that went super, super fast. So one second, you're sitting there, you're okay. The next thing you know, feels like your lung collapses. You remember an elevator. You yep. remember nothing for a month and a half after that, and they're talking to your husband, who's now your next of kin, about whether or not to, to let you go. Yep. That escalated remarkably quickly. Yes. And that, that can happen with people with CF, but a lot of times it's more general, it's more gradual than that. But for me, it's just it, it, very scary. You know, it was very scary that it, it happened that quickly. So what is that normally indicative of? Did, did, they, did they know right away everything, like what happened? Were there any mysteries that were going on? Or they were like, this is what happened. This is the problem. This is what we need to do to fix it. Yep. It, so, it was, it, they knew what happened because I was at a uh, hospital where there was a CF center. So I was being you know, followed by the, the CF clinic there. Okay. So they knew exactly what had happened. So now we come to the part where there's this big issue of you need a new lung or two. So how did that process work where, I mean, to get them on the list, I, I don't know anything about organ donation lists and transfers besides, right, what we've all seen on TV. Mm -hmm. But walk me through the actual process of what it was like to be on that list and to, and to get on that list and then to receive a transplanted organ. Okay, so I, I'll tell you what happened at um, the hospital that I was at when I was ventilating. So I was at the hospital for a couple months on the ventilator and they told my parents and Scott that they could not do anything for me that I had about six months to live and that I would never get off the ventilator and they would not even consider me to be listed for a transplant a lung transplant at that hospital because their wait list 
was a year long. And it only had six months to live. Wow. So why bother? So that was that, that was hard. Just, that was hard to hear. That's just how they dole out the news. Yeah, they're just they were very matter of fact about it. But then one doctor took my mother's side and said, "You should check out Fairfax Hospital Lung Transplant Program because it was a fairly new program for um, for the lung transplant." Okay. And um, they would probably have a shorter wait list. And back then, the way to get the organs is time on list. So they just went down the list, and you know whoever, whoever was next on the list got the next set of lungs, depending on if there was a good match and everything. Okay. Now today they've made it a lot better, in my opinion, that it's the sickest person gets the gets the organ. Okay. Which makes a lot more sense. Right. But back in the day, it was just time on list. So I was sent to a rehab facility in Arlington, Virginia, to get off the ventilator. And I actually did get off the ventilator. Now, that's got to be an accomplishment all in its own. Yes, because you get so attached to that ventilator because that is breathing for you. And to be off the ventilator is scary. It's very, very scary. Um, Because what they do to get you off the ventilator is they will take you off for an hour, put you back on, and do it again, off and on and on. And then they'll expand it to two hours off the ventilator, put you back on, and so on and so on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is somewhat akin to, to almost torture, really, yes. being off this for, for yes. that long and then continuing to do it. So I was terrified. I was oh, absolutely terrified man. every time they took me off the ventilator. So you, you literally do not know how long you can breathe on your own because you haven't had to do it for five months because this, this machine has been doing it for you. And... Was it okay at any point? Like when they took you off, did you, was five minutes okay? And then, it, or was just the entire time just? Or I, w- I just could, I could barely move. I was so scared. Oh my god, I can't I, imagine that. Yeah, I, I, I was terrified. And what ha- What you know, my my parents of course were there, and Scott was there. And he was you know working and stuff. But um, my dad pulled me aside. My dad and I are pretty close, so he could see what was going on. And he pulled me aside and he said, Colleen. The ventilator is not your friend. You need to get off this to get out of here. And that really hit me hard because it finally, he was right. It dawned on me that this is not your, so that's how I started looking at it, you know, that it was keeping me from living my life. It wasn't helping me breathe. It was keeping me from being able to breathe on my own. That, that has to be an amazing, just, just mental shift to yes. have happen. Yes, just, and I needed that kick in the ass. So, so your, yeah, your father really came in there and, and yeah. just, he was the one that just, the light bulb, that entire yes. shift of the mindset towards yeah. it. Because I, you just, you're so used to this machine breathing for you that you don't have to do anything and just sit there and. It was like the ultimate crutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, absolutely. So, so this is oh this this is a lot to take in. So so let's let's start shining some light on this. So so talk to me about, you know, it doesn't get much worse than that. Now now talk to me about when it starts getting better. There's yeah. there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. Yes. So Dr. Nathan, who's the head of the Fairfax Hospital Lung Transplant program. So he came he's the one my mom talked to. And so he came to see me when I was still on the ventilator at uh the rehab facility. Now I was I was getting weaned off the ventilator, so I was able to talk to him. Because right. when you're on the ventilator, you can't talk. 
Um, so he came and evaluated me uh, and talked to me. And it was amazing how much in denial I was about needing a lung transplant because I'd never, it never um, occurred to me that I would need a lung transplant because everything happened so quickly, the respiratory failure, the ventilator. And I was just like, are you sure I need a lung transplant right now? And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely positive. Yes, you do. <laughs> you will look at you. And um, so he was wonderful. I did, and, you know, I've seen a lot of doctors in my time, and I just knew he was a great doctor. And he was so, so nice to me and my family. And I just trusted him immediately. And I'm like, this guy is going to make me better. So, so there was like a, a, a gut reaction. Yeah, like, like this is connection. Th- this is good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then that started the process of um, getting listed for a lung transplant at Fairfax Hospital. So there's a lot you have to do. There's a lot of blood work you need to go through. You have to talk to a psychiatrist. You have to talk to a financial person. You have to talk to a social worker, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. And that took about a month. And then uh, July 1st is when I did the final interview, and that was with the surgeon. And that was Dr. Burton. And uh, he asked me if I was ready because he had heard that I was in a little bit of a denial about it, which I was over with by that point. Yeah, after a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of knew at that point that I did need a lung transplant. I had accepted it. Yeah. And he asked me if I was ready. And I was there. I was in a wheelchair because I was so feeble from being bedridden for five months because on you know ventilator, you can't really walk a lot. Yeah. And, and I was 90 pounds soaking wet and just, t- you know, just tired. I couldn't breathe. I was on a lot of oxygen. And he asked me if I was ready. And I said, absolutely, you know, bring it on. I cannot wait to feel better right. and breathe again. Right. Whatever you're going to do, yeah, do whatever, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, they listened to me after that discussion. And then two days later, the set of lungs came in. And there was probably about seven people on the list ahead of me. And, um, but the set of lungs that came in were B-type lungs, B-type blood. Right. Nobody on the list had B-type blood, except for me. Except for Colleen. Except for me. So by you know, grace of God, miracle, whatever you want to call it, I was listed and got the transplant the same day. Which is incredible because most people have to wait months or years to get an organ. And most don't. I I think it's important to point out as well. A lot of people literally die waiting for these organs. Especially the lungs because the lungs have to be almost pristine to get transplanted. Yeah, that's that's another thing that people don't uh, get a lot. My my cousin Chelsea's a respiratory therapist, and she talks to me a lot about how many organs get wasted because they're not absolutely pristine. Yep. I think people don't realize that the the organs that are up for for grabs are quite quite thoroughly uh, looked at. I guess right. would be a way to put them. Right. So these lungs come in the day that they listed you, yes. and you're the only one on the list that can use them. <laughs> and and odds? you know as you as you may recall i said earlier that the doctors at the hospital said uh, i only had six months to live and that was in february of 1998 and these... and i got the lung transplant on july 3rd 1998 oh so i didn't have much time left wow i could feel it i could feel it according to them yeah you're down to two months maybe and, if that, and yeah. these come, oh, wow. 
So if people are starting to put these dates together in their mind, you got these lung transplant, you got the, the lungs a long time ago, and this is somewhat rare. Yes. The, the fact that we're sitting here talking, tell us about how long it's been and everything that goes along with that. I'll let you tell the story. I don't want to step on it. Yes. So on average, people last about five years after lung transplant, and it's been 20 years. I just celebrated my 20-year anniversary. And it, 20 years and, yeah. since a double lung transplant. Right. Gee. And, and I was the first uh, cystic you. fibrosis patient that they did at Fairfax Hospital. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. You were and the very first one. Yes. There was actually another person there getting um, evaluated for a transplant at the same time I was that had cystic fibrosis. I didn't meet the person because I'm not, we're not allowed to, you know, right. talk to you or you know, be around each other. But the person decided not to get listed at Fairfax because they hadn't done somebody with CF before. Oh, and they wow. went to Pittsburgh instead, which is a great hospital. Yeah. But they have a long wait list because a lot of people with CF go there and I'm sure other you know, people. Right. So lucky for him, unfortunately for that person, I hopefully, hopefully they got the, the transplant, but I, I lucked out. I mean, I am not a celebrity. I do not have a ton of money, but I was just in the right place at the right time. And, or as we call it, a it was a miracle. Wow. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've had my ups and downs, but they say that you trade one disease for others. And that's certainly true. I have steroid-induced diabetes. I take about 20 pills a day for various side effects from medications I take. Uh, the medications I was taking for anti-rejection for the lungs led to, um, my kidneys failing. So I had to have a kidney transplant in 2006. Okay. I was on dialysis in 2005 for about six months, which was horrible. I lost 30 pounds in a month. You oh would think that God. you would think that cleaning the process of cleaning your blood would make you feel better, but it actually makes you feel worse. You, it exhausts you. It makes you nauseous. It is horrible. And I was doing that three times a week. Really? And um, so I did that for six months. And then my best friend, Kelly, called me and she said, I am going to donate a kidney to you. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> because I was worried about her because she was up in Albany, New York. And I'm down in you know, Washington, D.C. She was the, the sole breadwinner for her family. She had a small child. Uh, her husband stayed home to take care of the child. So she was the sole breadwinner of the family. So I didn't want her to, you know, I didn't want to disrupt that and, and you know, take... Right, you realized what a sacrifice this would be for, for, for her to make. And, and, and because you, I knew, yeah. being the type of person you are, didn't want that, yeah, so we didn't are, want someone to sacrifice for you that yeah, much. Yeah, so we, we, you know, which is funny now, but we argued about this back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And she finally said, she's like, Colleen, I need to do this because I need to save you. You are my best friend. And how can you say no to that, right? So I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> fine, you win. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she, so she uh, did some testing up in Albany, so she didn't have to come down here that much, but they did, she did have to come down here for some of the testing. And we were a great match. Wow. And so the day before my birthday, <laughs> great birthday present, uh, she gave me one of her kidneys. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, what and, a birthday present. But but what's funny about Kelly is she's this most selfless person I know because she could not figure out why people like my relatives, my friends were thanking her. She's like she she thinks of herself to this day. She thinks that was a selfish thing for her to do. Because what? she was trying to save her best friend. She didn't want to lose her best friend. So that was selfish on her part. I can see why you're friends with this lady now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, we actually met in college, and we were roommates for two years. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. where you guys first met. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing person. And we've been, fri- I mean, we've been best friends this whole time. Even, be- even before she gave me the kidney, she was my best friend. Right. But now she's really, you know, we're uh, like family. Yeah. You know, we're like family. <laughs> so... Well, if she's listening, uh, thank you from all of Colleen's family as well. I'll, I'll thank. Oh, I'll, she, be, I'll be another one to thank you, and you know now you know why. Yeah, that's she, yeah and she'll be annoyed at you too <laughs> <laughs> for thanking her. <laughs> so and she's doing and she's doing fine, by the way. I mean, she, that was going to be my had, next question. She's she had no problems um, after donating. But you know, I mean, I've, I've almost died multiple times. I've had a pulmonary embolism that they found by accident. Yeah. And um, then I almost bled to death because I was on uh, blood thinning medication and I just had a weird reaction to it. And I literally almost bled to death. Um, I've had multiple infections, lung infections, sinus infections, you name it, I've had it. Um, cancer, I had, I had very bad skin cancer on my head and had to have emergency surgery. And uh, they ended up uh, you know, taking out a taking getting the cancer out but in the process over the next few years of trying to close the wound site which is on the top of my head my skull ended up getting uh, infected and uh, they had to take out part of my skull so now I have this open wound on the top of my head so I wear a prosthetic so and I you know I wear I have to wear a wig because I don't have any hair obviously growing on the top of my head anymore I had no idea. I, I, I honestly yeah, they make did great not know wigs that. I, I'm looking at you right. I had no clue. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I went to the wig shop for the first time, which is traumatic, by the way. It's hard to do. Um, but luckily, uh, I had a friend that had gone through breast cancer, and had, she had wonderful wigs, and she's doing fine and everything. And so I asked her where she got her wigs. But, um, yeah, they make gray wigs today, and, you know, so is, is it's that, all good. Is that one of the things, uh, locks for love? No, is, is no, this is fake. Fake hair. Okay. You can do, yeah, I mean, you can, they, they make wigs with real hair. Right. But they're, they're a lot more expensive. So this 20 years that, that you've survived after this lung transplant, this hasn't exactly all been a walk in the park no, here. No, not at all. And they, told, they tell you that, you know, they warn you before the transplant. Even though they didn't have much time to tell me about what it would be like post-transplant, they did warn me. Right. That you would, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. And that really brings me to, to one of the key things. You know, when I was, when I was speaking to my mother about the, the possibility of interviewing you, one of the things after we had had a conversation that, that really stuck out that she kept saying was the absolute just unbreakable optimism that you maintain through all of this. The fact that you've had to deal with things that you've had to deal with several things that most people hope, I hope, I don't have to deal with one of these in my life or nobody in my family has to deal with one of these. And you've dealt with so many of these things and yet you remain just so optimistic, so positive, so happy. And that's really one of the main reasons I wanted to have this conversation. What, 
what is it? There, there's so many people that could go through something like this and just despair, and they could be just so angry or resentful or spiteful, and you've chosen to be the complete opposite of all of those. How and talk to me about your perspective. Like, how do you maintain this this amazingly upbeat perspective towards all of this? Well, a lot of it is uh, family and, and friends. Their support has gotten me through a lot, especially my mom. She was there every day when I was on the ventilator. And I was so anxious every day until she walked in the room. And uh, she's just kept me going with her determination. Between her determination and my determination, we have made it through this together. I mean, Scott's been just wonderful. His family's been wonderful. Um, my family, my friends have been great. You know, my friends from work have been wonderful. Everybody has supported me through this. I mean, even at work, you know, if I'm not feeling well, there's like 10 people that will jump up and say, I will take you home. You know, if you wow. need to be taken home, I will take you home. I'll drive you home. Or what do you need, Colleen? I will do it. Do you need, you know, aspirin? I'll go get you aspirin anything. I mean, I've had so much support over the years. It's just incredible. Wow. And, you know, I've seen people not do well. You know, I've known people with CF that have died because they didn't want to have a lung transplant. They've just, just decided against it because they didn't want to take all the drugs, which was the oddest thing to me. But they, But they were just sick of taking medication and they didn't want to do it, continue to do it. So they would rather die than go through a lung transplant. And that's exactly what happened. And I respect that. I respect that choice, but that's not me. I mean, I was determined, like you said, I was determined to, to get through this. And maybe it's because the doctors kept telling me, no, you're not going to get through this. That I'm like, yes, I am. Right. I'd, you know, if you want to see me do something, tell me I can't. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, the way I look at it is you don't have a choice. You just go through it, get through it, and you move on to the, the next issue. Yeah, and I, I, know that, I know, guess that's all there is. Yeah, a problem I, gets put in front of you, and you figure out how to solve it and try yeah, to keep going. I mean, I had a, a weird condition called catamenial pneumothorax where I, my lungs would collapse every time I had my period. And this was after the transplant. And they could not figure out what was going on. They looked at the, the donor organ history to see if that was, that was where it was coming from. No. And then we started to notice that it was every month it happened, and it was during my period. And so it's, something, it's this rare thing called catamenial pneumothorax. So all these bubbles, and you could hear it, all these bubbles would come up and up to my lungs, and I sounded like a coffee maker. Blip, 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 blip. And uh, really? they would push down on my lungs, and I, it was hard to breathe. And the first time it happened, they put me in the hospital, and they put me on oxygen and just kept me under observation, and let me home. The, you know, let me go home the next day. Right, because I'm guessing this probably goes away with, right. with, when, when, <laughs> when the period ends, right? right? So it's like, oh, it's fixed. I guess okay. Uh -huh. And then it kept happening. Right. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. But once, so, so there, the easy solution is I just take birth control pills continuously and I never have my period, right. which was fine by me. Um, <laughs> but that's just one like weird thing that can happen. And yeah. you just kind of get through it. And I even went to work with it. Like I, I couldn't breathe very well, but I'm like, well, I might as well go to work because 
then we'll have to take you know leave and why not go to work and do you know I'm, i have had a desk job so yeah didn't matter and people were like what is she doing here oh my <laughs> gosh well, it set sound- the bar pretty high for my coworkers. And yeah, you know, couldn't call in with the sniffles, but yeah, seriously, okay, yeah. like Colleen's here with this. Like, I can't be like, oh, my yeah. nose is running. <laughs> uh, got a little headache. I'm Colleen sit home. came in with a collapsed lung, and you're calling in with the sniffles. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a running yeah, joke that, the whole that's time. It's not gonna work well with yeah. the boss. <laughs> It's it, it's a remarkable story, and it, it, it's awesome that you've shared it. And this, I'm not the first person you've shared this with. Now we watched a video right before this. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that video that that was put together because that was phenomenal. Yeah. So uh, Fairfax Hospital wanted to uh, celebrate the fact that I was 20 years post lung transplant and uh, promote the uh, transplant center, the organ, the. Fairfax Hospital Lung Transplant Center because they were so successful with me, get, you know, getting me to 20 years post-lung transplant. So they did a video. They uh, interviewed my surgeon, who is, is actually retired a few years ago, but he came back. He looked just the same. <laughs> he was great. Um, the head of the uh, lung transplant clinic, Dr. Nathan, who he was the one that I first talked to about getting a lung transplant. And uh, the nurses and the social worker, and they interviewed all of us. They came to the house, they interviewed me. They they uh, put some video together of me and my husband Scott and our dog Penny walking, um, and it was just a great you know promotion for the the lung transplant program, especially and in organ donation in general. Yeah, it it, it was a beautiful video. Yeah, it was very well put together. Yeah, they did a great job. Yeah. They, they really did. And I I do do. Um, you know, now that I, I retired in April from my, my job as a federal employee of 26 and a half years, and uh, my focus now is organ donation awareness, which I've done that before, you know, since the lung transplant, I've, I've tried to do that, but I haven't had a lot of time to do that because I've been working. Right. So now that I'm walk- working, I can, I can focus more on that. And that just gives me tremendous joy to do that. Oh, I could imagine. I mean, it, I just have such a high after doing those kind of things. So you go to health fairs or you go to uh, high schools and talk to the kids in the you know, science programs or their health courses and talk about organ donation. And it's like giving back. You know, you have to, I have to give back. I have to tell more people about my experience so that more people check yes to right. donate because on it, their licenses. I, I'll tell you, even from the, the limited experience I have, you know, going through nursing school, we, we touch on a little bit of these things and how they work, but it, we don't go into a ton of detail, but the amount of knowledge that the public has about organ donation, how it works, what how they can donate, what it's like to receive the organs. I mean, I, I mean, I'm speaking to the expert here, but I, I'm assuming, based on what I knew and going in there, that the public's knowledge is not at all where it needs to be no. about something this important. Right. No, it's not, because there's a lot of myths out there, and that's partially because of TV, because yeah. they don't represent it correctly. Absolutely. And a lot of people think it's against their religion. That's a big one I, I get all the time. Yeah. And it's all major religions uh, are open to it you know okay. approve of it well that's good to know i i didn't know that personally yeah. so so because yeah, i get that a lot like if i go to a college campus a lot of kids will say oh my mom told me that's against our religion i'm like no it's not actually oh. doesn't matter what it doesn't really matter what your religion is it's not 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's a good first check to, to make on the box that, okay, well, that we're, we're clear there. Or a lot of people think that they're not going to keep you alive because they want your organs. And it's a completely separate team of doctors that takes care of you and that can, comes in and takes the organs after you're dead. So you find that there's a fear that if people sign the organ donation card that they'll receive a lesser quality yes. of care yes. because there's someone in the next room waiting for yes. their heart or their lung or their right, kidney. Right. Oh, yeah, Which, of course, the doctors don't have a vested yeah. interest in that. So the doctors are going to do everything possible to take care Absolutely. of you. And they're the ones that declare you brain dead. Right. And then the team from the transplant center comes in to procure the organs. Okay. So that's after you are declared dead. So what are some other big misconceptions? I mean, you obviously that, know, know a lot of them here. Like, uh, And that's why I said this earlier, that people think celebrities get organs quicker. And, of course, people think that because celebrities get on the news when they need and get <laughs> an organ. Like, I was never right. on the news for that. And uh, celebrities have the money to register at more um, locations than normal people do. So they're putting themselves on multiple lists right, because to they give have them the financial chance. resources to right. do so. Okay. And okay. They, they, you know, could, they might have a personal jet or a personal helicopter to get them to a hospital quicker to get an organ. So it might make it easier for them to, to get there. Okay. As opposed to somebody having to drive. So that, I get that a lot too. And then I also get... Um, People saying, well, don't you have to pay to get an organ? No, that's illegal. Oh. But in other countries, that happens. Yeah, you always hear, that's another television thing. You, yes. you hear about like the black market for right. these organs. Right. Is, is that something that you had any experience with or heard about or anything? Or just like, you're like, I don't want anything to do with <laughs> it. No, I've, I've heard people talk about it and, and tell them that that is not the case okay. in this country. Okay. Well, that's very good to know. So, so how did you first become involved, did you know that you were going to do this when you were going to retire? Or was this something that popped up after you retired and you thought, no. I need to do this? No, or? I've been doing this for probably about 15 years now. Oh, so this is but something was, you've been doing in a small capacity, yes. but now you're Now that I up. have more time to do it. Because they do a lot of, a lot of um, health fairs during the week and I was working, so I couldn't do it. But now I, I have more free time during the week, so I can do more of that. So... Plug this company that, that you're working for or this, this oh, cause. This is the, uh, is Washington, this just a nonprofit or a? Yeah, it's, a, it's the Washington Regional Transplant Community, and they're the organ procurement organization uh, for this area, for Was the Washington, D.C. area. Washington Regional Transplant Community. Transplant Community. Okay. Yeah. And so that's who you volunteer with to, yeah. to do this outreach to just yeah. sort of educate people about everything there is to know about organ donation. Right, right. Awesome. And so there's usually, you know, several of us that go to these events. And it's, so it's nice to meet other people. Like I, I was just at an event this past weekend, and there was a guy that had had a heart transplant, as well as his two brothers also had heart transplants because they all had the same disease. Wow. And it's, it was incredible to hear his story. And then I was also with a guy whose brother uh, was an organ donor, he had died falling down the stairs while on vacation and hit his head. And it was just an incredible, incredible story. And it's just nice to meet families of organ donors because I never got to meet my organ donor family. Right. And I, I, I think I that was mentioned on the video. Was yeah. it not, isn't that one of the things that you said that you never had a chance to thank the family? Right. 
Yeah, because I, I wrote to them several times and so did my mom. And of course, I don't know who they are. So we go through the Washington Regional Transplant Community uh, and then they never wrote back. The organ donor family never wrote back. Yeah, Which is unfortunate because in my letters, I remember writing that I promised to take very good care of the lungs. And I would just love them to know that it's been 20 years and I'm still trying to take good care of the, the lungs. And I think about them all the time. And, and the person that you know, was living inside, you know, through me, inside me. Wow. Like I'm actually three people, you know, I have a, my lung transplant donor. I got Kelly, kidney Kelly, I call her. Well, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to be the family member of someone and to know that, I mean, who, who knows what it's like in their mind and, and, you know, hopefully they're dealing with it the best way they know how, I guess that's all you can hope for really. Yeah. Cause I've met a lot of families that have donated their, loved ones organs and it's just nice to talk to them so at least i can talk to somebody and thank right. them for for donating right and they you know that it's sad for them but it's also happy for them because they see what organ donation can do for somebody right a lot of strong emotions at once probably yes. a lot of strong feelings of loss and sorrow but amazing yeah, tears, feelings tears of joy and, 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 and laughter gratitude as well. yeah yeah wow if i can get just one person at these events to say, I will be an organ donor. You have changed my mind. So, so is that, it's just incredible for me. Is that one of those big goals is to just, just checking that box when you do your driver's license. I mean, is that really what we're talking about? Like that's how easy it is. Just check the box. Yeah. You can do that. Or if you just talk to your family about it so that they know what your wishes are when so, you so pass. So if, if something were to happen, you're on the table, you're in the hospital, something's gone wrong, when they call in the next of kin, even mm-hmm. if it's not on your driver's license, they're like, look, we know this person yes. would want their organs to be used. We know this person would want to help other people. Right. So making your family aware and checking the box yep. literally That's all you can save so many lives just, yep. just right there. You can save several lives and you can also enhance the lives of over 50 people because of things like skin grafts or bone uh, donations. Right. So, so veins, people tend to think about the heart and they try to, and they, the lungs, maybe the kidneys, maybe they know about the liver, but you just mentioned a whole bunch of things that people, I I don't think that that's on the radar of people when they think organ transplant. Right. Right. There's more than just the organs. I mean, more than just, you know, the, the organs that we normally think about, it's the skin it's tissue it's bones it's veins it's corneas i mean the list goes on and on so you can affect so many people i wonder if we got like some sort of you know how they like to rename everything so it sounds prettier like as as time goes on i wonder if instead of organ donation if it was like uh help other people they came up they came up with a name that didn't make it sound like okay they're gonna cut your heart out while you're still living you know, I think a lot of people just put that bad mental image with it, which it, it's refreshing to hear you say that that it's not how it works. And there's so many different options. And yep. well, I'm, I'm glad that I could at least uh, help amplify that message in a little bit. Check the box. Talk to yeah, your family. Why, yeah, why not? And you can have a regular funeral. They're not going to cut you up in a way that you're going to look any different. That's a big one for people. You, I, I'm sure that yeah. ties into the religious ceremonies yep. and, and, and things like that as well. Yeah, and it's just, you know, you you can't take them with you, so why not keep a piece of yourself here and help some other multiple families and people? Right. You know? Well, I think that's a one hell of a cause to be out there pushing for and, you know, certainly wish you success with that cause. 
before we leave, I was told by my mother that I had to talk to you about pizza before we <laughs> left. And I know that's like the worst transition ever. And it didn't, like has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I was told that you are a huge pizza fan. And this is a true story, which I actually did not tell you yet. But before I came here, when I drove to your house last night, I drove directly from an interview with my new friend, Scott Wiener, and he actually runs New York City Pizza Tours. Yes, so, I know the name. Do you really? Yes, I do. I've met him. Are you serious? Because I've gone on the pizza, his pizza tour. What? <laughs> are you kidding me? You, I you love actually, him. You've I, actually I, met Scott. Yep. So you truly are a pizza fan. I yes. thought that this was going to be a great story. I was like, I know this guy <laughs> up in New York. I just interviewed him. It's going to be, but oh, you I mean, already this, know. Uh, this is exciting that you actually talked to him. Yeah. We sat down yesterday in the middle of a pizza. It was a pizza oven like display room inside of a pizza restaurant and it was beautiful like oh, i mean I it was bet. just absolutely amazing to sit down and talk to him about oh. pizza about his business and everything right there it was it was nuts but how did you first get into this how well, did you hear about him well yeah i go up to new york city once in a while you know for a weekend or you know whatever you know my, my uh, mom is originally from the bronx so they go down there often for to okay. see show and you know see friends and things like that family st patrick's day that's a big one in our family. Um, but I, I just happened to see him on like the morning, sh one of the morning shows or 60 minutes or one of those shows. Right. And I'm like, I got to do this, you know, <laughs> pizza tour, New York city, what could be better? Right. And so right, we right. signed up and it, it was, it was awesome. It was just awesome. It, it was amazing. Scott was great. Yeah. He, he was he, just great. He really was. And I he mean, he knows I, his stuff. You are not kidding. He knows yeah. his stuff. Like I was, now, the tour that I took, he's expanded, and so he has a team of people. So yes. when I took the tour, I actually didn't take the tour with him. I took it with a girl named Krista, mm -hmm. who was amazing. And I mean, I talk about that. This this is probably going to seem redundant if anybody listened to the last episode, but it's like really, it was really an exciting and an educational tour where you think you're going in there to go around and try a bunch of different pizzas and be like, I like that one, or I don't like yeah. that one. But it is an educational and historical tour. They're talking the science behind the yes. crust and the sauces and the cheeses. And They're, the different types of ovens. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I mean, they go into it. And you can't help but be interested. Yes. You and and the different types it. of flour. And he has, you know, he, you know, we're on a school bus going yep. it through. We were in Manhattan. And then we went to Brooklyn. We're you know, it was great. Everything was great. The pizza yeah. was all great. He would show us the ovens. We can go in the back and look at the different types of ovens, coal ovens, wood-fired ovens, etc. Yeah. He would take the temperatures of the ovens. We had little books that we could um, yep, take I got, notes. I, my, mine's out of my car right <laughs> I now. I got mine yep. right over here. That's awesome. We should compare <laughs> books when we're done. That'd be funny. So so where where did the first love of pizza come from? I mean, well, it's just something I'm, that you... I'm from Rome, New York. So it was a bunch of Italians, of course, in Rome, New York, go, yeah. and they had the great pizza in Rome, New York. <laughs> unlike so unlike Virginia, I'm sorry, but uh, you just can't find good pizza that there, yeah. that, that can compare to New York. Yeah, you're right. Anywhere you're, in New York. Yeah, just the, those big ovens, the the dough and the the crust. That's the big thing I think people don't realize. They don't know what it's like to have like a truly slow fermented crust cooked in right. a hot hot oven. Like, it's tough to describe. I know it is. It is. <laughs> Because I tell Scott, you know, he's not a, an aficionado of pizza like I am, although I keep trying to get him to be one. But I'll point out the differences when we have pizza in Rome, New York, or in New York City versus here. And it'll be like, you get the, you get the taste difference, right? And he's like, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> it's like, can you not see? Can do you not, not see? taste the difference? <laughs> oh man. Well, it's good that you, it's good that you do. No, I, I had to bring that up. Wow. That couldn't have went better. I had no idea that you knew Scott and that you actually took one of those tours. That, oh, that's yeah. crazy. I'm going to have to I'm text ready to him. do it again. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to have to text him after. I tell you what, next time you go to New York city, let me know. I'd love to go on one of those tours with you. That, yeah, that would be oh, amazing. So we'll get my mom to come along. Yeah. Cause I know family. he does different places every time. So well, we wouldn't go to the same places. That's what I was going to yeah. say. So when we took our tour, we walked the whole time and it was a Brooklyn pizza tour ah. because now as he's expanded, I want to say that he works with over 60 different pizza restaurants wow. in New York now. Yeah. So as he's expanded, now he has different routes. Okay. So now if you've taken one pizza tour in Manhattan, you can go take another one in Brooklyn. Yeah. And now you can go take another one here and there. And, and he's got all these little ones. So yeah, because we started at Lombardi's in Manhattan and then we went to Brooklyn. For the other three. Okay. Yeah. See, I was in Brooklyn for uh, all three of mine that were all within walking distance of oh, each nice. other. And it was this like nice eclectic. It was like the first one was wood fire. And right. then we went and saw a gas fired and wood fire. And then yeah. the last one was gas and stuff like that. So it, it was very neat. Well, listen, Colleen, we just did an hour. And um, lucky for us, the lawnmower stopped finally. That was that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? The one that eh, it's fine. It was sort of funny. We were looking out the window, and I was like, "Wow, that's a nice lawnmower." It's it's sort of like it's it's sort of messing up my audio right now. But that's a nice lawnmower. Anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Is there anything else welcome. that you want to close with? Would you like to tell people one more time um, about the organ donation? Uh, nonprofit that you're working with and, and where people can find you, your video online, anything that you want people to see or know more? Um, well, WRTC has their own website, but you can go to beadonor.org to sign up to be an organ donor. Beadonor.org. Yep. Okay. Um, and uh, the Unova um, Fairfax Hospital website will have the video up on, on their site. And that's a great video. I mean, if, if you, if, if you want to see Colleen, obviously I'll have her picture and her bio posted, but I, what, what is it, a five-minute video? Yeah, it's five it's, minutes, so it's, it's not short. very long, yeah. yeah, but it says a lot. It, it's, worth, it's worth a look. It's worth five minutes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for coming on again. I'm so happy that we finally got to catch up and we got to do this. And, and I, I hope that more people know about your story. And, and I hope it really helps some people just have more of a perspective on life the way that you have a perspective on life. Yeah, and, because you really, when you go through something as big as what I did, you really learn to appreciate the small things like sunsets and you know just the moon at night when we're walking penny or the flowers you know out front or just whatever you know people being nice to you you just remember those types of things and you don't worry about big stuff that's just not you don't worry about the politics and you know people being rude and it just doesn't matter because you know what's important and scott and i hardly ever f fight at all because why there's no you can't sweat the small stuff you just Scott and I have been through so much together in our 21 years of marriage, especially the first six months of marriage or the first year of marriage, that we just know what's important. You know, we, we love each other very much, and we know what it took to get us here, and it's just not worth fighting over little things. And a lot of people do do that, and it's a, it's a shame that we, have, we just need to get away from that and just, you know, remember what's important in life. And I'll leave it there. Okay. Colleen Adamson, thank you so much. You're welcome. And that's episode number 10, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, uh, what a story. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you took away as much as I did, especially 
you know what's important in life and what to be thankful for and what to let go of please 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 when you get your driver's license or get it renewed check that box to become an organ donor there's so much misinformation and old wives tales about it but i hope we've done our part to bring a little more of the truth to light because it can save so many lives be sure to visit beadonor.org for more information and there's a link to that in the show notes there's also a link to the beautiful documentary they did when colleen reunited with the team that did her transplant after 20 years it's only five minutes long but you might go through most of a box of tissues before it's over and talk to your families Uh, Have those hard and awkward talks and make sure everyone knows what you want to happen should you die or become unable to make your own medical decisions. I can vouch as a member of the healthcare community that you do not want the first time your family has that conversation to be in the ER waiting room while you're unconscious. So that's it, folks. Please tune in next time where I head to the Sunshine State to talk to a good friend, stand-up comedian, Greg, the angry Texan parrot. Thanks to my special guest, Colleen Adamson. Thank you to all of you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you soon.